Turn to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Acts, chapter 2. We're going to begin reading with Peter's sermon in verse 14. We're going to go through the end of the chapter, verse 47. And I'll be reading out of the New King James Version, Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 47. God's word declares, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to the men of Judea, And all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. Before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know him. Being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death, because it is, was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, Let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor his flesh seek corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together 
and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Well, David asked me if we were going to be done with Acts chapter 2 and heading into chapter 3 today, and I just said no, and not next week either. <laughs> we come to the end of Peter's sermon, and remember the question that began was, what does it all mean? Whatever could this mean, is the translation here in the New King James. What could this mean? As they watched the Spirit come upon the disciples, as they heard them speak in their own languages, it did not resolve anything for them. It simply piqued their interest and brought them to the question, what does this all mean? Peter's response, his sermon, and this is not the entirety of it, because, of course, we find that it says, with many other words, he spoke. But in his sermon, his focus is to bring them to ask the question, what must we do? Because once they were confronted with the scriptures that Peter quotes, is making them understand its truth and rehearsing the testimony of Jesus Christ and the power of God and the resurrection, its purposes, this is what men should ask. What must I do? What shall I do about this? We crucified him. God raised him up. He is Lord. He is Christ. He is the ascended one. He is at the right hand of the throne of the Father. What shall we do about this? This is the question that Peter's response we want to look at very briefly as we look into again the birthday of the church. And perhaps my greatest struggle is that as we in these modern times have looked at this chapter, we have thought that the solution to waning righteousness and waning interest in the gospel is to try to relive the first 13 verses of Acts 2 and essentially abandon the last 30 verses that we have read in Acts chapter 2. If we could just focus on these magnificent representations of the coming of the Holy Spirit given there, that that would certainly draw men to Christ. But we find that the effectual work that day, the birth of the church is still the effectual work today, and that is to the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to look tonight, or this morning, at its effects We have considered Peter's response. We want to further develop that. We also want to look at um, how they responded and why. And next week we'll take some time to look at the results of responding to the gospel message. Before we do so this morning, let's go Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your word before us and your spirit within us. We pray you might give clarity of speech, and of thought 
of listening today, that your word might go forth to instruct us, certainly. Lord, more than that, to convict us, to strengthen us, to challenge us, to encourage us. And Lord, we pray that we might, as that audience of old, listen carefully, allow your spirit to prick our hearts, that we might not resist it as many that day did, that we might honestly question what we should do. And allow your word to answer that question, not the world, and not our own interests or nature. So Lord, we pray also that you might put within us the heartbeat of Peter's message. That we might recognize that having served, that in the service of a risen Savior, there's great power. That it is the answer to the dilemma of man's sin. And Lord, give us a heart to share that with others. A love that we can only receive from you, and we pray that you might grant it to us even today, this hour. And Lord, again, we commit this time to you. Pray you might guard it and work in it. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, in response to the question, what shall we do? We saw several weeks ago Peter's answer, and we have left it off so long ago that I think it is worthwhile to revisit it somewhat. Peter's answer to them is really threefold. Two things that they are actively to do, and one thing they are passively to accept. So when the question is asked, what shall we do, Um, his answer is to repent. Let every one of you be baptized, and you shall receive the Holy Spirit. You can join in this ministry and in this uh, presence of the Holy Spirit that you are seeing the outward evidence of in our lives that is also being offered to you, but it has a requirement before that coming. And as all the promises of God that I find in Scripture... This one has a condition as well, and that is that you repent. Um, There's the further command to be baptized, which is right in line with with Matthew uh, 28, 19, 20. Uh, Peter is simply rehearsing what Christ told him. We might look at this and say, well, why doesn't he say, trust in Jesus, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? For that was is going to be the statement we're going to study later on. We get to Acts chapter 16, other passages where, where that word, that verbiage is, is preferred. But here we uh, understand, Peter's understand, Peter's working of this word repent. He has just rehearsed for them repeatedly the fact that they murdered the Christ, the Messiah. This was their act. This was their accomplishment. This is what they bring to the equation of their relationship with God. For the Jewish people who had already accepted the idea and the presence and the person of of Jehovah, it was time for them really to come to an understanding that simply following after God and the law was no longer sufficient. It was not 
the purpose of the law to redeem men, and the purpose of the law to, to was point to one who would redeem men, and that one has come. His name is Jesus. And he is the Holy One, the just one, the innocent one that the Scriptures prophesied of. And so for these who were of the heritage of faith in Israel, there in Jerusalem, whose desire really was to some degree please God. And yet caught up in the mob scene created by the religious leaders of the day, they cried out, crucify him just a few weeks earlier. For them, they believed in Jehovah. They held to the scriptures. And for us, we would say, well, that's enough. How wonderful a count you as a brother. But that's not Peter's response. <laughs> Peter's response isn't that's enough to keep the law. It's not enough to believe in God. We are told later on in the scriptures, of course, that the demons believe in God and tremble at that belief. They're, they're fearful of him. And so none of that is really sufficient. And Peter boils it down for those who are within that body of truth. That is that they, they, they have been raised in, in understanding the scriptures, they have heard the name Jesus, they have seen the miracles, they have, they have experienced historically in, her, in their heritage uh, the working of God. They consider themselves the chosen people, and Peter's response to them is not to believe because they really already believe in God, they already believe in, in a Messiah, they already believe um, in all of the scriptures that were penned at that point. Um, they believed in the mighty working of God in their past, but what stood between them and God remained. All that belief wasn't sufficient. All of that practice of the law was not enough. So Paul, I'm sorry, Peter here calls them to repent. And in Scripture we find the interchangeability of repent and believe um, but I think you will find that most consistently you will find this word used among those who have a background, a heritage, a history of knowing God, accepting his word, where you will find belief and trust to be more often used within the context of those who do not have that history. Um, but we find that they are generally interchangeable. So this command, what do I do? Well, you repent. Repent of what? Remember, this was Israel. He repeats this over and over again throughout the message. Men of Judea, he says in verse 14. Men and brethren in verse 29. All Israel, men of Israel, he says in verse 22. Again and again, he understands who his audience is. But these are men who have that history. They believe. They believe in a Messiah, in the law, in Moses, in the prophets, creation, all of that. Not enough. They were still lost in their sin. And so Peter calls them to repent. That is to turn from all that that you have trusted in the past. Not just, not just uh, your sins. Certainly there's a repentance of sin that is required of man. And, and that I'm going to dwell on this morning. Because uh, it's necessary in our age. Um, because I don't know that our audience that you go out and talk to is well represented by this phrase, men of Judea, men of Israel, men and brethren. I think we have a different audience. 
But to this audience, it was not only repent and turn from your sin, but it's also repent from your empty belief system and empty religious practices and turn to this one that you just a few weeks earlier on a wholesale level rejected. You must turn and trust in Christ. You must turn from your sin to the Savior, Jesus Christ. You must turn from your own self-righteousness to the righteousness imputed only through the one who has died for you and Christ that was raised again by God the Father. And so this statement, repent, that they might have the removal of sin and their sins. He had a second command laid right on the heels of the first in the text. And this, uh, and we're going to deal with the remission of sins here in a little bit. And, and that one is to be baptized. That you are making this not only a repentance of the heart, a change of life, a decision to go in a different direction. And now instead of opposing Jesus Christ, I'm going to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Instead of yelling out, crucify him, I'm going to yell out, crucify me. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Now that that has happened in your heart, in your mind, in your life, it is necessary in God's workings that happen in your public testimony. That in this very public, picturesque manner, God has commanded us to declare this change, this newness, this washing of the blood, this this new life, this determination. I have put myself in the watery grave and I am now walking uh, not for myself and my interests, but for the interests of God. That He is my Savior, He is my life, and I am no longer defined by what you used to know as Kirk Wessling, but I am now defined by Jesus Christ. No longer is my familial background defining me. No longer does my economic standing define me. No longer does my education define me. No longer does my language group define me. No longer does any of my nationality define me. I am now defined not by my sin either. Now I am defined by Jesus Christ. It is how I will present myself to the world. And this is what is communicated in baptism. The Jews understood this. It was an act that they engaged in. Uh, every proselyte from the Gentile world into Judaism uh, baptized was baptized in living water. That is water that had an, 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 ingre, an, an egress. Uh, uh, so it had flowing water across it. It wasn't stagnant. So they were familiar with this. And of course, not so many years ago, there was one man who became known as the baptizer. His name was John. And he came to make a path for the Messiah to bring down mountains and fill up valleys in men's hearts. And his statement was similarly, repent. And men responded and preparing their hearts for the Messiah's coming and he baptized them a baptism of repentance. And so the practice was familiar to this group. So Peter could very easily intermingle them and, and give them almost as a single command with two sides and repent and be baptized. For to their mind, those two went hand in hand. 
that to have your heart change and go to a new direction needed to be communicated to others. And the way you did that was by following in the waters of baptism. That's how you communicated it. We then come to the phrase, for the remission of sins, and much has been made of this. And again, uh, we have to get into the Greek syntax, how the Greek orders their language. And they do not order it in the fashion that we do, um, necessarily, where we have you know subject, verb, predicate. Um, but rather, the words that come first are the emphatic words. And so what is Peter emphasizing is repent and be baptized. This is the answer to the question. How do we know that for the removal of sins doesn't really connect to baptism? That is that you're not going down the water to have your sins washed away, uh, which is too often portrayed and talked about. Well, because the way they attach the verbs to the, to the uh, nouns is not in, or, in word order, but in tenses and, and uh, cases and things like this. And so whether it's masculine, feminine, plural, singular, and so we know that he is really talking about that repentance as an act of this choosing to turn to Christ is that which brings the remission of sins. For without the shedding of blood, we know there's no removal. And, and so we find the necessity to bring forward these dual command in response to the question, what shall we do? And for the Israelite, they understood the distinction that it was the work of the heart, trusting in the Christ that would remove their sins and not their act of baptism. And then, having really answered their question on the active tense, he then takes a passive verb and says, you shall receive. That they are now, having been cleansed of their sins by the work of Jesus Christ, by the name of Jesus Christ, by their choice represented in the word repentance, are now vessels fit for this wonderful gift of God, Holy Spirit. That as one turns his heart to Christ, God's promise is that he would send him. It is not for us to conjure him up. It is not for us to uh, prime the pump. The promise is that of God. That he will give him to those who have accepted Christ. Who have turned from themselves, and all that they represent, sin, the flesh, and turn to Christ, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Peter goes on to explain that this promise, that is the promise of the Holy Spirit to all who repent, is not only to you, It is an offer to your children. It is an offer to all who are far off. And Peter himself doesn't really understand, doesn't grasp the depth of what he just said. And that's very typical of many of the prophets to not really grasp what they are communicating. 
And you might say, well, that seems odd. They, they certainly must have known what they were writing down. Well, we know that's just not the case. Many times we find the prophets coming to God and saying, what does that mean? I wrote it down, you told me, but I don't get it. Daniel, uh, particularly, who just wrote it down, just kept praying to God, what does it all mean? Well, here, similarly, Peter prophetically declares to all Israel that God's intention is not just that one handful of people, that, that 12 apostles, that, that 100 and some, 120 people that were with Christ uh, in a certain setting, that the, it was alone for them, nor is it for one generation, nor is it one for, lo, for one locality. God's deliverance is going to be offered to all, certainly the likelihood is that in Peter's mind, those who are far off are those of the dispersa, the the dispersed, diaspora, the the dispersed um, Jews throughout the Roman Empire and even beyond. Um, but in God's eternal plan, His interest was in all men. So Peter is saying, "This is a message that you need to hear. It's a message your children need to hear, and it's a message that everyone needs to hear." is that God has this wonderful gift, but that giving, that promise, is conditioned. Is conditioned upon a repentance. A trusting in Christ, turning from your way to God's way. Verse 40 gives us a little added verbiage, that we, uh, one phrase, really, that we want to pick up on. It says, with many other words, he testified and exhorted them. And, um, of course, the last half of verse 40 do not really represent many other words, is it? It's pretty short compared to the message we already studied. But in every way imaginable or able, Peter is, in essence, communicating to these uh, a very potent and direct message, and that is, be saved from this perverse generation. And fundamentally, with whatever words God gives us to communicate to men, this is the essence of what needs to be said to them, that we communicate to them the necessity that they be delivered, saved, rescued, we saying earlier, rescue the perishing, from this from the crookedness of humanity, from that bent that sin has put in us, that we need to be delivered from that because the end of that is destruction and death, and we are unable to straighten ourselves, to turn ourselves. Therefore, we must trust in Christ to do so. And this is the message. And it's a message that you have heard me share many times that I believe has been largely abandoned by the church. We do not want to talk about salvation as deliverance. We do not want to talk about the ways of men as sinful, perverse, crooked, wrong, and deserving of judgment. Rather, we communicate God as a great benefactor, as a wonderful gift, that he would like to bless your life with. Is that true? Certainly. I do not challenge that the veracity of that information. However, to communicate that information without the context of God's demands for man 
to respond to his righteousness is to do damage to the gospel. In many ways, we are simply putting a carrot on a stick and putting it out in front of people and say, and dangling this reward and saying, all you have to do is accept it. Just accept it. Just believe. Don't you want this? And they kind of shrug their shoulders. Says, I guess, you know, as long as it doesn't cost me very much. And we, what's our answer? It doesn't cost you anything. It's free. Isn't that our answer? It's a free, it's a gift of God. The word gift implies it's, it's, it's comes free. And so they look at this gift and they go, oh, well, yeah, if it doesn't cost me anything. And, and, uh, yeah, if it's going to keep me out of hell, I'll take it. Never in the course of the conversation are they confronted with their sin. Are they confronted with their desperate need? Are they confronted with their perversity? Never are they confronted with the evil acts that they have done. Never. We simply invite them, don't you want to lay hold of this wonderful good thing? Never communicating to them how undeserving they are of it, how wicked their way is, because we don't want to offend them. Because if we offend them, they might not listen to anything else. I'm pretty sure that if I went around and started telling people that they murdered Jesus, they would be kind of offensive. Yet Peter did exactly that. You killed him. You killed him. You were lawless. You you did it knowing that it was wrong. He goes out of his way to communicate repeatedly to them one sinful act that they could have even easily just displaced, just shoved off the blame. Well, it was the religious leaders. No, it was the Romans that killed him. It was no. They could have easily done that, but Peter doesn't let it go. He keeps driving back to that one act. He says, this is the culmination of your sin, that God sends His righteous one, the Son. He performs all these miracles in your midst. He performs uh, the teaching, and, and you know He was an innocent one. You know it was a lawless thing that happened there. You know that He was a great prophet of God. You know that He was a fulfillment of Scripture. And you rejected it all. And it cut them to their heart. In that phrase, verse 37, that we describe as the word conviction, um, we often say, well, that's the Holy Spirit's job is to convict people of their sin, and you're correct. Again, I won't, I won't challenge you on that information. I want to challenge you on the process that you have just described. That somehow there's no responsibility on you to permit an atmosphere whereby the Holy Spirit convicts. Let's go back to that verb, that verb, that verse, and see what it says. Verse 20, 37. 37, it says, Now when they heard, they were cut to the heart. 
when they heard Peter talking, having been confronted with the truth, then they were cut to the heart. This is the process. Now, did Peter cut them to the heart? Did Peter try to convict them? No, because the fact is, is that just as there were people there who were cut to the heart, there were people there who weren't. There are people there that scoffed and they're still going to walk away from this encounter. It is those that were cut to the heart having heard. And this Paul describes in, in Romans 10, where it says, how, you know, how can they believe unless they hear? And how can they hear unless somebody goes and tells them? And how can anyone go if no one's sent? But there is a process that we have been called to engage ourselves in in, in, a, in a partnership with God. He has promised to do his part, that he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But even as the gift of the coming of the Holy Spirit is, is uh, conditioned upon our accepting of Jesus Christ, I'm convinced that the work of the Holy Spirit to convict is also, in many ways dependent upon people hearing the truth. And perhaps the most insidious part of our culture today that we encounter and that really a lot of people get angry at me over is not mincing the truth. Of as some will say, you just tell it as it is. Well, not to hurt anyone, not to do injury, but with the hope that they will be cut to the heart, that the truth of God's word needs to be communicated, that what's right needs to be called right, and what's wrong needs to be called wrong. And that is our message, is to confront people with this kind of a statement that says you must turn from your sin. And we do not even want to talk about their sin, where we are fearful that they will just walk away in a huff, and the probability is, is that they will. And my question is, so what? I said, well, then they'll never listen to me again. Well, if you're not talking to them about their sin, there's no value in them listening to you. So you wanting them to listen to you is really for your benefit, not theirs. Because you're not giving them what they need to hear. Be saved implies that you are in peril. And we don't communicate the peril. And therefore people come to Christ not looking really to be saved from anything. They're really looking for a big blessing. Never burdened by their own sinful state. Never recognizing that they are crooked, perverse, evil, wicked, lawless sinners. It has been 
a very, very, very long time since I have confronted anyone who will weep over their own sin, who will allow its weight to break them. It was a common experience a generation ago. But frankly, in our age of modernism, we just feel we're just too advanced to have such sensitivities. Because frankly, nothing is sin anymore. Either it's a mental illness, it's a disease, it's a result of my upbringing, it's my culture's fault. We have perfected the art of displacing blame to such a degree that we never feel the weight of our own sin. This is not just true in the world, it is true in the church, in the Christian's life. We do not grasp the affront that we have committed before God. We do not recognize we are perverse and all the ways of men of this generation are that. We do not pick up the paper this Sunday morning and see on the front page of one of the sections and declared on the very front page homosexual couples glorying in their relationship. And somehow we are not even brought to a single tear when we should be vomiting that our culture, our generation is perhaps as perverse as that of Sodom's and of the Noah's. And we shrug our shoulders. The men glory in sin And so we are called to do one of the most difficult, most unacceptable social things that you can do in this land today. And that is to call sinners, sinners. And to call acts of sin, perversity. This week, a lead singer of a popular, quote-unquote, Christian band asked in a tweet, what's the big deal with letting gays marry?
You see, the phrase, be saved from this perverse generation, is lost to us. Because we glory in perversity now. And again, these are leaders within the Christian movement, quote-unquote, both leader and Christians, quote-unquote. Because I would contend that those who are so desensitized to sin cannot, cannot be Christian. For it is not Christ-like to call evil good and good evil. But this we are called to communicate, to exhort, to testify, to use every word, all many other words, to communicate in essence, people must be delivered from this perverse generation. Somehow we have to get across to them the horridness of their sin, the abominableness of their acts, the wickedness of their hearts and their minds, but we don't and we can't largely because we don't acknowledge our own. As long as we excuse sin within ourselves, we will never confront the world with theirs. The generation around you is one that is heading to perdition, to judgment. It is running there headlong. And the public wants to believe that there is nothing for them to to be delivered from. And too often we have relinquished the gospel message to those sensitivities. In our day and age, to make a statement that one sin is evil will bring the wrath of our culture against you. And I'm not sure that most Christians are up to that. A few have been and have paid the price. They've lost their jobs. They've lost their positions. They've lost their families. They've lost, supposedly, credibility in our society. But I want to share with you, they have gained eternity. And on that scale of eternal reward in heaven, contrasted with anything and everything you could lose here on earth, it doesn't take a mathematician to figure out which is better. See, the real loss is to compromise the message of Christ, and not only do we end up sending them to eternal destruction, we are endangering ourselves of the same. 
So yes, um, we are called to go out into the world and speak the truth in love, but the truth nonetheless, not a compromised truth. Not to engage them in, in political debate, but to simply point at liars as they lie and call them liars and point to the immoral and their immorality and call them immoral. To point to disobedient children and call them disobedient sinners. To look at the coveters and call them coveters. To look at murderers and call them that. To look at those that hate, as Jesus did, and call them murderers. To look at those that lust and call them adulterers. Whoa. Are you the thought police? No, but I know who is. And I serve him. Our message cannot vary. It cannot get off track. This is what we communicate. Be saved from this perverse generation. Many will be offended, but some will believe. The Bible says that those who believed did so gladly. And those who gladly received his word were baptized. That day about 3,000 souls were added to them. 3,000 that day turned their heart from being pricked and cut, turned a heart from being stained with sin and in rebellion, turned their heart from trusting in their religiousness, recognized the perversity of their ways and their generation and accepted the deliverance that only Christ could provide and they gladly received his word. And they were baptized. And they were added to the church, to the disciples. We're going to look at their activity, the result of their activity, but we really want to spend time to look at the result of preaching the truth. The result of preaching the truth is to put men on one side or the other of that truth. It is a cutting thing we are called to tell people that they are sinners that there is a God they must answer to who is holy, holy, holy. They will land on one side or the other of that truth. They will hate you and despise you or they will gladly receive the word you've given to them. If you have a whole bunch of friends that aren't on one side of that truth or the other, I would contend that you are not really giving them the truth. Say that again. If you could identify most of your friends as being this wishy-washy middle ground, (laughs) then my contention is you created the middle ground by compromising the message of the gospel. Because in God's word, there is no middle ground. There is no wishy-washy place. 
Either you are of those who will gladly receive the word, or you are those who reject it and will hate and despise and, and hunt and kill, persecute, beat. Think you do service to your country and to your culture by turning in your family members who trust in Christ. This is what was prophesied would happen. This is what occurred. And if it's not occurring today, it is likely, most likely, it is because we have compromised the message for this generation. And what we have really secured in our comfort is their sure destruction. I would much rather have a few gladly receive the word and the rest hate me than for everyone to think I'm just a nice guy and a good friend who has some odd ways. The first one brings the blessing of God on your life. The second, the blessing of men. The first will be a blessing that will not be felt much in this world, but will be sure in the next. The second, you will occasionally benefit from in this world. And you will weep over it in the one to come. For you've robbed yourself. The church must reclaim this message in its twilight hours of its age. We must reclaim the message to our generation be saved from your perversity. You must be delivered or you will die and you will spend eternity in a lake of fire. Let's not cloud this message or compromise it to make people comfortable with it. For it is certain that no one comes comfortably into the kingdom of God. They come cut to the heart. They come injured because they have realized they are sinners. This God, this is our message that God calls us to communicate is also the message we are called to respond to. Will we gladly receive such a word that we are sinners, guilty of the death of our Lord on our behalf, yet raised up by the power of God? We will either sit at his hand ruling with him, or we will be counted among his enemies till he made his footstool. No in-betweeners. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love that was willing to confront men with their sin. Again and again, you've called us to that task to confront them with their sin that you might convict them of their sin. Lord, we 
have failed, and I've failed. We know what the consequences of that are for those that we have failed to communicate. Lord, it is a simple thing for us to throw up our hands and say, these people, they just don't think anything is sin. Lord, we recognize that it begins not out there, but in here. That we recognize our sin and turn from it. That our righteousness might shine with brilliance in the desperate darkness that we are surrounded by. Lord, give us the courage to call sin, sin. And the fortitude to accept whatever opposition that creates for us in our society. And Lord, we Know that in the times of your destruction of the earth, in the flood, in Sodom, that men did what was right in their own eyes. They counted nothing as sin. Lord, we thank you for the centuries of the law to correct that thinking. for the evidence of its work in breaking men's hearts over that sin, pointed at by the law. Lord, where lawlessness is, for that is the norm. 